This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I'm leading off things today with a perfectly legitimate Taylor Swift item that contains zero conspiracy theories. If you looked at the headlines, if you watched the Grammys last night, she made history. Fourth Grammy for Album of the Year. That's pretty remarkable. And she used the occasion to tout, to reveal the secret, she says, that she's about to put out a new album called... The Tortured Poets Department. I think it's a great title, but seriously, what does she have to be tortured about? She's got a boyfriend. She's the most popular singer on the planet. She may or may not endorse Joe Biden. Uh, So she seemed kind of speechless when she won for her album Midnight's. First artist to win the prize four times. Breaking the tie with Frank Sinatra, Stevie Wonder, and Paul Simon. Oh my God, she said. And she's thanking everybody, including her producer, sound engineer. I would love to tell you this is the best moment of my life, Taylor said. But she said she feels just as happy when she finishes writing a song or rehearses for a tour. For me, the award is the work. All I want is to be able to keep doing this. Well, that's great. Oh, Joni Mitchell also um, made her first appearance at the Grammys. One of the best singer-songwriters of all time. But on the dark side, by the way, I, I, I had a great time kicking around all this whack job Taylor Swift stuff on yesterday's Media Buzz with Clay Travis who kept wanting to talk about football. He's for the San Francisco 49ers. He wants the Kansas City Chiefs knocked off. He hopes Taylor will be the Yoko Ono of the Kansas City Chiefs. So I have kept trying to get him back to Taylor. Um, But on the dark side, Killer Mike, the rapper, was taken away in handcuffs during the Grammys after he had won three... Awards. So I'm thinking, all right, you know, did he slap someone? Did he, was this uh, disruptive conduct? Like, why would he be taken away? So his real name is Michael Render. He won the best rap song, best rap performance, and also best rap album. I mean, that's a pretty clean sweep. And then he was handcuffed and let out. So when you dig a little further, you find out, at least according to the Hollywood Reporter, that the LAPD would not officially say why, but a law enforcement official told a member of the rapper's team that he may be released, may have been released last night, I haven't seen an update on that, but refused to say what Mike was being charged with. THR, Hollywood Reporter, saying that an official uh, had let the publication know that his detainment was related to a misdemeanor 
Nothing to do with anything inside the arena. It's a big nothing. Okay, this is driving me nuts. If it's a big nothing, why would you choose to lead him off in handcuffs at the Grammys where he's just won these awards? Why not arrest him tomorrow? If it's not a big nothing, still, it just seems like such a bad police decision. But obviously, we need to know more. By the way, if you want to see uh, any of the Media Buzz segments, uh, particularly the one with uh, about Taylor Swift, but we also talked about, oh, you know, the Mayorkas impeachment. We also talked about the uh, Biden authorizing the retaliation. Stuff that I'll update and get into on this very pad- podcast. And I hope you had a good weekend. Oh, guess who popped up on Saturday Night Live during a skit, the cold open, with the Trump impersonator, James Austin Johnson. Yes, hello. She stood up to ask a question. My question is, why won't you debate Nikki Haley? Oh my God, it's her, said the Trump impersonator. The woman who was in charge of security on January 6th, it's Nancy Pelosi. So he's still getting uh, crap for that. Are you doing okay, Donald? You might need a mental competency test. (laughs) So the Trump actor says, well, he took a test and he got a perfect score. They said I'm 100% mental. He said men are better suited to hold political office than women who are terrible with money. In fact, a woman I know recently asked me for $83.3 million. We talked about that too. And by the way, I should say to no one's surprise that Joe Biden won the South Carolina Democratic primary with 96% of the vote. Kind of a blowout, but I mean, let's face it. He's running against Marianne Williamson and a congressman who no one ever heard of outside of his home state. But I got to say this. I've complained before. Maybe it's just, you know, 250 times about President Biden not talking much to the press, being shielded from the press. When he does talk, it's these clip dancers with the helicopter blades or engine roaring. So just in the last few days, let's take a step back and think about this. Biden, who engineered South Carolina, which saved his bacon four years ago, to be the first primary. Stiffing Iowa and New Hampshire. Okay, when you're the incumbent president, you get to do that. So I thought we would play on the show something from his victory speech. Well, well, there was no victory speech. Why? Because he wasn't in South Carolina. He went out to raise money in California and uh, also stopped in Nevada, uh, which has some kind of primary caucus thing coming up. Why wouldn't you spend the night in South Carolina, come out, give a speech that would be replayed all day on television? It's crazy. Secondly, when the President of the United States ordered the retaliatory strikes, because the whole week I, I was planning sort of an A and B version of the show. No retaliatory strikes. We do this. Yes, retaliatory strikes. We do that. And... You know, this was pretty serious stuff in that we're talking about 
85 targets. U.S. estimate more than 40 people killed in retaliation, a reprisal for the Iranian drone launched by one of its proxies that killed three American soldiers in Jordan. And the retaliation was striking these targets in Iraq and Syria. So, you know, some conservatives saying too little too late. Why do you wait five days? Even though U.S. officials are saying, you know, it's going to be, there's more to come that's going to play out over a number of days or weeks. And liberals saying, you know, this was a proportionate response. Did President Biden seize the opportunity to address the nation, even in a short speech, to say this is why he did this and you cannot harm Americans without facing reprisals and thereby sort of asserting himself on the stage as commander-in-chief? No, he didn't do that. Put out a statement. It's always a statement. And as I say, statements, you know, they get read by anchors for half a day and then they're gone. Television needs video. And then number three, Joe Biden turning down a massive audience by declining for the second straight year to be interviewed at the Super Bowl. I mean, it's usually a pretty easy interview and a massive audience. Why would you not do that? Now, last year, he turned down Fox. Fox had the Super Bowl. Okay, maybe unlike Fox. This year, it's CBS. So he just passes up all these opportunities, legitimate opportunities, to speak to the public, whether it's through the media or not. And then they all wonder why he's seen as a weak leader, particularly the commander-in-chief role. Perfectly legitimate, and he doesn't do it. I think his people overprotect him. They're so afraid he might say something wrong or stumble over his words or whatever. So what? That's Joe Biden. So, Meta. You're familiar with Meta. Um, The company that owns Facebook and Instagram criticized by its own oversight board for, quote, incoherent and confusing policies having to do with an altered video of Joe Biden that uh, went around, made the rounds on Facebook. So Facebook decided not to remove this video. Just listen to this. This is sick. This is sick and disgusting, which had been edited to show Biden appearing to touch his granddaughter inappropriately. I mean, it just makes me want to vomit. In the unaltered footage, he's placing an I voted sticker on her chest. Now, Meta says, this is just Looney Tunes. The post did not violate its rules, which apply only to deep fakes, you know, videos and audios and photos created by AI to impersonate a person that alters someone's speech. And the oversight board upheld that, but said the company needed to clarify its policies. 
Okay, so just think about this. This is like saying this policy only applies um, on the last Wednesday of every month um, if it shows a Democratic president. I mean, it's just what is the point of splitting hairs here? It's not okay to alter someone's speech or they appear to be saying something that the actual person did not say. Okay, I'm on board with that. But it is okay to alter someone's image so they appear to be engaging in borderline pedophilia? It's a horrible mistake. What is Zuckerberg thinking? And he's, and he's supported by this board that the company pays for. All right, that's a lot to digest. By the way, my voice is feeling a little bit better. My main challenge on the show yesterday is if I sounded hoarse, if you happen to watch, it's because I've been battling this cough and cold, classic winter stuff. And um, let's just say that while taping the opening of the show, for example, we had to make, uh, we had to do it a few times. Sometimes for reasons of my voice, but sometimes just because of mistakes made by the control room, which was grappling with a new graphics system and maybe more than you want to know. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Let's go. Story number one, Peace and Politico. Column by Jonathan Martin. How many more polls do there have to be of RFK Jr. near double-digit votes in swing states before he's taken seriously? And how many Biden speeches must be shouted down until Democrats realize that a hot war in Gaza this fall may mean 30,000 fewer votes apiece in Madison Dearborn, and Ann Arbor, all college towns, and therefore the presidency. It's the left that presents the most acute peril to the president. That's his argument. Now, if Kennedy gets on the Libertarian Party line, which would make ballot access easier, and Jill Stein, as always, is the Green Party nominee, and Cornell West, running as a pretty far left independent, get on any of these uh, ballots in battleground states, they would combine to drain far more votes from Biden than from Trump. You wouldn't think Democrats would need much reminding of this scenario, given how many uh, lived through the two campaigns, 2000 with Al Gore and 2016 with Hillary Clinton, in which they lost the electoral vote in part because of leftist spoilers. Instead, they're worried about no labels and the effort to draft a centrist. Here's Liz Smith, who's been on my show a few times. She's now signed up with the DNC and says, people don't understand how few votes the third-party candidates would need to take away. It's the whole election. Few in the administration sense the danger more than Kamala Harris. From holiday parties at to a dinner at her residence last month for a group of prominent black men, Harris has been telling sympathetic Democrats that she recognizes the political challenge posed by Biden's unwavering support for Israel. 
Harris told people she's making the case privately for the administration to show more empathy for the plight of innocent Gazans. Biden, however, is different. Like everyone else in the administration or any Democrat with a pulse, he's deeply suspicious of Benjamin Netanyahu and has privately called the Israeli prime minister a bad effing guy. A spokesman saying he did not say that and would not say that. But this comes days after the leaking about Joe Biden in private calling Donald Trump a sick F. And Trump, of course, is outraged because he never uses personal attacks uh, and has been fundraising off this kind of stuff. I, I think the White House is trying to get across the fact that Joe Biden is forceful and private and drops a lot of F-bombs. You think? Uh, White House officials telling Politico that when Biden appeared at the National Prayer Breakfast this year and decried hate against Arab Americans and offered prayers for those held hostage or under bombardment or displaced, he was trying to send a message. Now, a recent YouGov poll, 50% of self-described Biden voters called Israel's attacks on Gaza a genocide. And that's fascinating because of the two parties at war here, and I'm not minimizing the humanitarian catastrophe for innocent Gaza families who've been displaced from their homes and more aid needs to get there. But there's only one party here whose avowed mission is to kill as many Jews as possible, as we saw on October 7th, and wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And that's Hamas, the Hamas terrorists. Anyway, peace ends up by saying uh, that the Biden campaign is going to try to discredit Kennedy, Stein, and West, perhaps, uh, from both within and outside the campaign. Uh, here's a piece in the L.A. Times about sort of Kamala Harris's comeback. Here she is talking about Trump. Dictators jail journalists. Dictators suspend elections. Dictators take your rights. After a rocky start, Harris finally seems to have found her footing in a role to which she's accustomed and adept, prosecuting attorney. She's become top fundraiser for Dems, an emissary to groups that are lukewarm about Biden, black and younger voters, most forceful voice on abortion, women's health, and all things Trump. This is a reset of source. After many early missteps and a series of assignments, among them immigration reform and border control that seemed destined to fail, and the situation changed once we had the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court. And so the piece concludes by saying the VP is more than now just a bit player. And look, I've said on television that her delivery is much better than it used to be. Doesn't mean she doesn't have various liabilities. But you look at the recent spate of TV interviews she's done, and she just looks or gives the appearance of being uh, more forceful and more relaxed as opposed to the word salad days. All right, number two. So 
you all know that the House committee has voted to advance the impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas of Homeland Security. And New York Times really sort of hits home by saying, look, the Republicans have also filed articles of impeachment against, as you know, President Biden, but also Merrick Garland, FBI Chief Chris Wray, and is threatening to file such articles against Pete Buttigieg and Education Secretary Miguel Cardona. Threats of impeachment become a favorite pastime for Republicans following the lead of Donald Trump, who has pressed his allies for payback for his own two impeachments while in office. Now, the chances of a conviction in the Democratic-controlled Senate from Mayorkas, Biden, or anyone else are about zero. But, and this is the interesting uh, historical aspect, impeachment once seen as perhaps the most serious check on corruption and abuse of power developed by the founders now looks in danger of becoming a constitutional dead letter. Just another weapon in today's bitter tit-for-tat partisan wars. Trump's two acquittals made clear a president could feel assured of keeping his office no matter how serious his transgressions, as long as his party stuck with him. But where impeachment consumed the White House under Richard Nixon, I remember that vividly because it was the first summer that I had spent in Washington and just watching the whole thing unfold. Bill Clinton, much more controversial, but it isn't like he didn't do anything wrong because we were talking about lying to a grand jury, not just the involvement with Monica Lewinsky and Trump himself. It's barely an afterthought in the Biden West Wing. And would Trump be worried about a third impeachment if he wins the presidency back? I don't think so. Back when the founders were debating this, and I'm a real buff for this constitutional history stuff, they decided on treason or bribery. But George Mason thought that was too limited, and he added maladministration as an impeachable offense. James Madison objected, saying that was so broad it would make this president subject to the whims of the Senate. Mason backed down, but they came up with this phrase, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, not exactly defined. Alexander Hamilton, you know him as a play about that character, um, argued this would relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself. Not any old crime would be impeachable, only those that were offense against the people or the system. It was meant to be rare, and for a very long time it was. The House has voted to impeach a government official only 21 times. The Senate has convicted and removed such officials only eight times. And the only other cabinet officer targeted for impeachment was back in 1876, William Belknap. He was accused of corruption, resigned in tears, and then the House impeached him anyway. But that was the end of it. Speaking of campaign-related matters, U.S. economy just keeps getting better, says Politico, and it's forcing Donald Trump and his allies to contort the talking points they thought they would use, you know, to ride to victory. 
The labor market added 353,000 new jobs in January, blowing away expectations. I mean, even conservatives on Fox Business and CNBC said that was a wowza number. 36-month in a row of job gains under Biden. Stock markets hit a record high. Trump says it's because the market recognizes that he's going to win. But actually, you have to, if you're going to blame the incumbent president for a bad economy and inflation, you got to give him some credit. As Stephen Moore, senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation, and a guy who was close to the Trump campaign, said, look, you can't blame the president when policies go wrong and then say he's not responsible if things are going right. Consumer confidence is up. Oh, here's Trump on True Social. Voters are already enjoying a Trump stock market. Everything else is terrible. Watch the Middle East. Larry Kudlow, now on Fox Business, former top economic advisor to President Trump, said, I'm an honest broker. If I were Biden, I'd be bragging about it too. All right, number three, the whole Fonnie Willis mess. She has now acknowledged, admitted, fessed up, as we all knew because she was silent for three long weeks, that she had a personal relationship with the outside prosecutor she named to manage the big Georgia RICO case against Donald Trump and a bunch of other co-defendants. But she denied doing anything wrong. Except it stinks. I mean, it just smells bad. And as I've mentioned before on this podcast, I mean, even some liberal columnists, columnists are saying, what was she thinking? So she does a filing, including a sworn affidavit from Nathan Wade, her boyfriend, who said there was no personal relationship between them before he was appointed. All right, you can buy that or not buy that. But they did develop a personal relationship, which is to say a romantic relationship, um, later on. Wade denied that his role had financially benefited Fonnie Willis, as one of the Trump co-defendants had claimed. Oh, you know these vacations they went on to Aruba, San Francisco, and elsewhere? Wade claims that they split the cost. He would pay for one trip, she'd pay for another trip. Okay, we'll eventually find out. There's a hearing scheduled on all this. Even defenders of the case have conceded, according to the Washington Post, that Willis damaged her own reputation and public perception of the case. Trump wants her kicked off. I don't know if it rises to that level, but it looks terrible. And remember, Nathan Wade was paid $650,000 taxpayer money 
to be the chief prosecutor on this case. And yet, she says in this filing, um, this is just an attempt to garner more breathless media coverage and intrude even further into the personal lives of the prosecution team in an attempt to embarrass and harass the district attorney personally. It is a ticket to the circus. Trump taking a victory lap here, even though nothing else has happened except the filing of these briefs, saying that after Fannie Willis made this admission, this means that this scam is totally discredited and over. Remember, when this first came out, she accused her critics of playing the race card. Fonnie Willis is African-American. She said Wade is a legal superstar. But there's no evidence that race has any role in this. And here she is admitting, yes, we did have this relationship. Yes, we did travel together. Some of the details are disputed. And there's an earlier case. This is interesting. Where Fonnie Willis was disqualified from handling it as the Fulton County DA after she sponsored a primary fundraiser for a Democrat who went on to face uh, somebody else in the general election. And the judge said Willis hadn't done anything legally wrong, but the judge called it a what are you thinking moment and said she had compromised public trust in the investigation. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Story four. We finally, finally last night, got to see the text of the border bill, a bipartisan border bill that is being negotiated in the Senate. Up until now, all I could tell people was, well, I don't know what's in it. It's $118 billion legislation. It includes funding for Ukraine, Israel, humanitarian aid, and, of course, the border. Donald Trump immediately came out against it again. He already has, and now that it's out. Some Republicans claiming that it will increase illegal migration at the border. But other Republicans, most notably Mitch McConnell, want this to pass. Uh, Senator James Lankford has been the lead Republican guy said people people come in mass numbers because they're getting released. If the word gets out immediately that it's not true anymore, people will come in a more orderly fashion. So some of the details. Make it harder for migrants to apply for and qualify for asylum. Quicker resolutions for asylum cases. A new removal authority to speedily remove migrants who don't qualify for asylum. a trigger mechanism that would allow the border to be effectively shut down to migrants if crossings have been particularly high for several days in a row. So that is defined as 5,000 a day. Or the president could choose to invoke that when it's 4,000 a day. And I have to stop right there. Because why 5,000 a day? Like 5,000 a day is okay or even 4,000 a day is okay? I could see a legitimate opposition based on that. Why not 1,000 a day? Why not 
200 a day. Why would we want to say that that is the level in which the president of the United States can basically close the border? I mean, I think the number is ludicrous. But it also includes some democratic priorities, such as use of parole at land ports of entry, hiring of thousands of new Border Patrol and asylum officers, as well as increasing detention capacity. I think the chances of this passing are very slim. And Speaker Mike Johnson announcing over the weekend that he's going to introduce a standalone bill to provide military aid to Israel. And you would think, okay, everybody will agree on that. But the whole point is to take away the leverage. Johnson and many others in the GOP, but not McConnell again, don't want to do aid to Ukraine, which would be a complete betrayal of the Ukrainian people who are fighting and dying against the illegal, brutal, and horrible Russian invasion that has killed so many civilians. So this is like a chess game, move, counter move. It goes on and on. Story number five. If you hear the paper, I have an actual copy here of the New York Times Magazine. I've been trying to get to this for days. This is a piece by a woman named Sophie Hagney. I am texting all the time. I am, at the very least, receiving texts all the time. I'm in a lot of group chats. Constant interlinked text message-based conversations. I guess that's the little explanation people don't have a computer. Some people might consider this a nightmare. Sometimes I'll be away for a couple hours, come back and find 279 new messages. But I'm not one of them. I'm a person under the age of 30 with a computer job and a Twitter habit who generally prefers to have plans most nights of the week and whose attention has long been divided, if not shattered, by the constant digital communication. You might ask, what are we even talking about? Well, someone sends a link to an article or a life update or a joke, another joke or a dumber joke, a reading recommendation, a funny photo. There's a heated back and forth concerning some controversy online that we are back-channeling about in private. There might be a rundown of a night out, serious news about the decline of a parent's health. What else do people talk about? Many things, I'm sure, but this is the particular stuff I am talking about, the texture of my whole life experience. It's colored by the sense that I am talking to all of my friends all at once, almost all the time. Or at the very least, I could be talking to them almost all the time. And if I'm not talking to them, they're talking anyway without me. So text messages go back to something invented by Apple in 2008. Sophie Hagney goes on to say that my own group checks serve a wide range of purposes from the purely practical to the highly intimate. She says a new chat might pop up for a wedding weekend, a set of unsaved numbers asking one another questions about the location of a brunch. I am in two separate chats for Grateful Dead enthusiasts both of which tend to move at the pace of old-school internet forums. Um, 
types of communication that were once limited by the human capacity for having actual conversations, you know, I guess that's called talking, now flow at an unprecedented speed. And there's a feeling of being connected. Some might argue that this is a deception and another screen-based way to stave off loneliness. I would say it glows with potential. And the reason I'm, I'm spending some time on this is, kind of captured in this graph, the past decade, journalists, academics, social media users have spent enormous amounts of time and energy parsing the effects that platforms like Facebook and Twitter have had on public speech. These effects have mostly been pretty bad. But the group chat happens in private, and the impact of walled-off digital speech has been less widely discussed. When group chats are examined as a social phenomenon, they're often praised as a kind of anti-social media. And so, given the fact that I see lots and lots of people texting all the time, and group texting all the time, particularly younger people, it really is a kind of a, a private internet because you have to be allowed to join. And to the extent that that is rising, the importance of the social media giants, you know, I guess that would include TikTok and Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram. It's not that they're going away, but I think people have gotten tired of them, or at least the fact that anybody can post something attacking you. And this way you're, you know, you're in a zone with the people you like. Now, it sounds from this piece like it's utterly and totally addictive. And, you know, gets to the point where you're not doing your work anymore. But at the same time, I think it's a reaction to social media and it is kind of the opposite because it is private, because it's just among friends. Now, are certain people excluded from that and that's very traumatic for them? Yeah, particularly if you're a high school student. But... I think she nails something in this piece. It's almost similar to podcasts. I mean, it's very different, obviously, but you choose to download a podcast. You choose to participate as opposed to having a lot of stuff pushed at you. Doesn't mean I'm not going to push this podcast, but um, I don't know. Maybe this will become the dominant form of communication and no one will ever speak to anyone again. Just sit in your room and chat away. Hey, once again, uh, Media Buzz segments online. And appreciate your spending this time with me. And we will be back tomorrow with more Buzz Meter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.